Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I'm your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. Let me ask you a question to begin tonight. Who is the best basketball player in the world? Did I hear Michael Jordan? It's, it's definitely Michael Jordan, right? Definitely, definitely Michael Jordan. Now, here's the, here's the question to follow up with that. Has anybody here listened to Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame induction speech? Raise your hand if you've listened to the speech. If you, like maybe like one guy back there. Well, it was, it was a number of years ago. Some of you may not even been alive. When, well, when was it? Like 2009, 2008? Some of you were like barely alive. Probably barely alive. But of course, Michael Jordan did, did, uh, was inducted into the Hall of Fame, and he delivered a speech. And I know in recent years, they had a, he had a big documentary that came out, and uh, I think it was on Netflix or something like that. And um, you know, it came out through that that he's not the nicest of guys, you know, when he, especially when he was playing. But, uh, and really, if you were to listen to his Hall of, Hall of Fame speech, what you find is a tremendous amount of pride and self-focus. For example, he never once mentions God in his entire speech. Nothing about how God has blessed him with the genetics that he has, his place of birth, the opportunities that he was given, nothing along those lines. Regarding former coaches, teammates, and opponents uh, opponents that contributed to his career, um, Michael Jordan gave out far more insults than he did compliments, if you listen to it. Um, many times alluding to how various people did not recognize his greatness or what he was capable of accomplishing. Um, even when he did give out compliments, they usually centered on how people gave him the motivation to be better. But still, it was about him and really his whole speech Michael Jordan's entire Hall of Fame speech was really about Michael Jordan, if, if you were to listen to it. Now, I know I'm picking on him and, and his pride, but the truth, here's where, here's where it makes sense, is, is when we think about ourselves, if we are being honest with ourselves, then we are guilty of the same pride and selfishness, at least at some point in our life. For example, all of us at some point have felt that we were not recognized for our talents and or accomplishments. All of us have probably felt that at least at one point, that we were passed over when we shouldn't have been or when we feel like we deserved not to be. Also, when we have accomplished some success in our life, it is easy, and I'm sure we're all guilty of this, of believing that our efforts were the sole contributor to our success that we are the reasons we were successful in a given moment. And not that our efforts don't mean anything or our hard work doesn't mean anything, but there are so many factors in life that are outside of our control and that, de- and that determine the outcome of life. Factors that are ultimately under the control 
of God. And as I've briefly mentioned before, none of us chose the family we were born into or the genetics that we were born with. I can tell you that if Michael Jordan had been born with my genetics, he, there's no way he would have been the best, best basketball player in the world. No, no questions, no doubts about that. But he was born with, you know, freak genetics, six foot six, you know, athlete, incomparable athlete, right? Also, we see in athletics as well that despite a person's best efforts to stay strong and healthy, athletes can and do suffer career-ending injuries and illnesses. And there have been many phenomenal athletes who, whose career was, was ruined because of a injury or series of injuries or some kind of illness. Also, there are some athletes out there, we're using the illustration of sports here, no many of you can relate to that, but there are some who do have tremendous skill in genetics, but are overlooked for one reason or another. And it could be politics on the team or a number of factors where if given a certain opportunity, given the opportunity to shine or to demonstrate their skill set, maybe they would have gotten to the next level. But because of circumstances outside of their control, they don't get to the next level. Not every athlete gets the chance to prove themselves or demonstrate their full potential. And so if we're being honest with ourselves, when we experience either failure or success, we can often fail to recognize the Lord's hand in those situations. And we can become proud and self Focused. However, Scripture is clear that it is God who gives and takes away. It is God who raises up and brings down. God is in control of everything. And this truth, which is true today, was also true in the days of Daniel. It's very much true in the days of Daniel. It's been true for eternity. And it was, with this in mind, it was equally true for King Nebuchadnezzar, who we are going to encounter for the final time tonight. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 4, and this is the final time we're going to hear about King Nebuchadnezzar. And in this chapter, Daniel 4, we are going to read about a final lesson of God's power that King Nebuchadnezzar would be forced to learn, a final lesson. And so if you're not already there, turn with me to Daniel and as you're turning there, one interesting thing to note is that in this, one thing that's special about this chapter, unique about this chapter, is that this is the only place in Scripture where a pagan king is the author writing from his perspective. Only time this takes place, and King Nebuchadnezzar gets the honor of writing Scripture as a pagan king, yet it's not without reason or hard lessons that had to be learned. So we're going to cover Daniel 4 tonight, do our best to get through the entire thing, and we're going to begin in verse 1. So verse 1, here King Nebuchadnezzar writes, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom 
and his dominion is from generation to generation. So what we see here, pausing here for a moment, these first three verses, is that Daniel 4 originally was likely a letter that was sent out to every part of King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Every part. And as we see here, and what we are going to see, is God is going to use this letter, this testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar, and the events that are recorded in this chapter, in this letter, to display his power and glory to the entire world. Let's continue in verse 4. Here, Nebuchadnezzar says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Now, what he means here, and he's giving us the setting that all of these events are about to take place, but what this indicates by what he says is that King Nebuchadnezzar, at this moment, was experiencing a time of peace and security as a king time of peace and security and really prosperity. And what that means is that his military campaigns were finished. All of the earlier threats to his rule were finally over, at least from his perspective. And so he was at the height of his power. In a way, he was like the prime Michael Jordan among all the kings in the world. He, had, he was dominating. He was dominating. He was the wealthiest, the most powerful. Everything was going well for King Nebuchadnezzar. However, despite feeling secure, he's about to receive a dream that would disrupt that comfort. So let's continue, and he's gonna talk about this dream starting in verse five. He says, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in and related, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. So here he brings in these guys again. We've encountered these guys back in chapter two. And the fact that he initially calls these guys in as magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, it shows that at this point, King Nebuchadnezzar still did not fully appreciate the God of Daniel. He still did not fully appreciate it. He still had some growing and learning to do. And as we're gonna see, this is about to change, right? This, is, this, this lack of full appreciation is about to change. So starting in verse eight, he says, but finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar according to the name of my God, lowercase g, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay in my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all living creatures fed themselves from it. 
I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay in my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. So pausing here for a moment, here he spells out the dream, to Daniel, who he renamed Belshazzar earlier in the book. And we can at least say, despite the inefficiencies in his understanding and his appreciation of God, he at least recognizes that Daniel would be able to give the correct interpretation. So he's on his way to a full appreciation of God, but not yet, not yet. Well, now turning, continuing in verse 19, let's read the interpretation that God granted to Daniel. So picking back up in verse 19, it says, Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Now stopping here, for a moment, we can make at least two observations from this verse. The first one being that this dream, as we're going to see, indicates personal disaster for King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, humiliation. In Daniel 2, the first dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had, the dream of the statue, Daniel knew that the dream did not indicate immediate harm to King Nebuchadnezzar. It was about, ultimately, we would find its fulfillment way in the future. We've talked about that. And so Daniel didn't necessarily worry about sharing the interpretation of that dream. But here, Daniel understands that the dream is not good for King Nebuchadnezzar personally, and so he's nervous. He's nervous to share the interpretation. And this leads to the second observation that what that we see here, Daniel has genuine respect and concern for King Nebuchadnezzar. He has genuine concern. And this is consistent with Daniel's character and the concern that he has had for all people that we have seen in previous chapters. So he has concern for King Nebuchadnezzar. He knows the dream is going to be bad for King Nebuchadnezzar. So he is nervous about sharing the interpretation. Yet... The king encourages him to do so. God has given him this interpretation, and so he continues. Starting back in verse 20, 
Let's read the interpretation. So here it says, The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky in your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. That you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the fields, and you be given grass to eat like the cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. So several observations that summarize this vision and in, in the interpretation that we just read. And I do have a slide for this one. Several observations. One, we see that this tree is a representation of King Nebuchadnezzar and his great power as king of Babylon. It's the first thing we see in this interpretation. Next, we see that God would remove the king from power and make him like an animal for seven periods of time. And really what that means is seven years. For seven years, he would be made like an animal and like a beast of the field, like cattle. Another thing that we see from this interpretation is that while King Nebuchadnezzar would be away from his throne, living out in the field, eating grass, God would make sure that the kingdom of Babylon does not transfer to another person. He would preserve it. A fourth thing that we see, and it's implied in verse 26 of our passage, that the seven-year period of humiliation would succeed in humbling King Nebuchadnezzar. He predicts the success of his humiliation. In other words, God predicts that there will come a time when he recognizes that God is king over everything, and at that time, he will be restored. But we see one more observation that is critical, and that is this, that the king had the chance to avoid the seven-year period of humiliation if he humbled himself now. So if he would have taken Daniel's advice and changed his ways and humbled his heart, then he could have avoided this humiliation. And what we see here is critical 
Because when you look throughout scripture, you do find that God will punish the wicked and the proud. He will. But scripture also reveals that God is patient. That he's patient, he's long-suffering. He gives people time to break away from sins and to humble themselves. He doesn't always bring judgment immediately. He gives time. He gives warning and he gives time. And as we see here, God would give King Nebuchadnezzar time to get his heart right before God. And if he did that, then Daniel indicates that his prosperity would continue. That it would continue. So we see all of these things from this interpretation. Unfortunately, though, for King Nebuchadnezzar, as we're about to read, he would have to learn the lesson the hard way. He would have to learn the hard way. So let's continue now in verse 28. It begins, it says, All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So pausing here for a moment, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar had a full year, full 12 months to shift his attitude and his approach to leadership. 12 months. And it was as if God was watching him like a hawk. What are you gonna do, King Nebuchadnezzar? How are you gonna think? How are you going, what's your attitude gonna be? And as soon as Nebuchadnezzar uttered prideful words, as soon as he spoke, and he was only speaking to himself. It wasn't like he was making an announcement to his whole kingdom. He was on his roof, talking to himself, thinking to himself. And as soon as he even thought prideful words, God executed discipline immediately. And so now let's read about this discipline, verse 33. It says, Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out 
So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Reading these last verses, there are at least two miraculous things that God has accomplished with King Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter. At least two things. The first being, the first miracle that God has accomplished is God has successfully humbled King Nebuchadnezzar, who then goes on to speak biblical truth. And as we read from Isaiah 40, before our time of of song and worship, King Nebuchadnezzar is basically reciting the biblical truth from that that, that passage. And, And Isaiah, for some context, the prophet Isaiah wrote those words in Isaiah 40 roughly... 250 to 300 years before King Nebuchadnezzar ruled in Babylon. And yet here we see this king not only humbled, but speaking and repeating biblical truth of God's sovereignty. Now, the reason this is a miracle, the reason this is a miracle is because if you follow Scripture all the way to the Gospels, where Jesus gives his teaching we find Jesus teaching that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's impossible. The eye of a needle, like those little little tiny needles for threading, super, super tiny, huge camel, it's impossible. A camel can't go through that needle. And so from a human perspective, it is impossible for King Nebuchadnezzar to be humbled like this unless God was the one who did it. And this is true because as Jesus teaches in that same context, right after talking about it's, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, he also says that, but with God, all things are possible. So with God, the impossible becomes possible. God can open up the eye of that needle, and put the camel through it. And with King Nebuchadnezzar, that is exactly what he did. God is able to take the most proud, the most powerful, the richest, and humble them, leading them to honor and praise God. And only God can accomplish this. Only God can truly do this. So that's the first miracle. The second miracle that we see here is that God preserved King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom as promised. He preserved it. Now, why this is a miracle is because if you know anything about ancient empires, and we've talked about this in previous weeks, ancient kings were constantly fighting internal rebellion, assassination attempts, people that wanted to take power for themselves, lead what you would call coups, military coups, trying to overthrow the king's Ancient kings dealt with this all the time, all the time. And so here in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, it is a miracle that his kingdom was preserved. 
In that time, if an ancient king became crazy, living outdoors and eating the grass like an animal, which is what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, it would have been almost guaranteed that somewhat, somebody would try to take power from themselves, from a human perspective. That would be almost, that's exactly what you would expect to happen. And from a human perspective, it would not have been hard for a usurper or somebody trying to take power to convince the people of Babylon to abandon King Nebuchadnezzar and to follow him. It would not have been difficult. After all, he was crazy. For seven years, eating grass like a cow, had long hair covering him like feathers, fingernails like bird's talons. You would have expected King Nebuchadnezzar to have either been killed or to come back and now there's a new king on the throne and he's out of power. And yet, yet that is not what happened. God preserved his kingdom, his throne. Only God is able to do that, and he did. And so when King Nebuchadnezzar was restored, his kingdom was waiting for him. And his counselors returned to him. And all of his majesty, all of his, his, his earthly majesty as a king was restored. So we see these two miracles and again, as a result of these miracles, what we have is a former pagan king turning into a spokesman for God, a spokesman to the world. And the truth that King Nebuchadnezzar speaks, really, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, this is the theme of the book of Daniel. The theme is that God is in control of everything. He's in control of history He is in control of kings. He is in control of kingdoms. And God is the one who will get the glory at the end of the day. And if it's not given to him voluntarily, he will force it to be given involuntarily, as he did with King Nebuchadnezzar. So as we come to our conclusion now, last five minutes, what are some practical points of application that we can take away from Daniel 4. How does this apply to our life? Well, to begin, I think it's fair to say that nobody here is currently being humble like King Nebuchadnezzar, right? No one here is barking like a dog or, you know, eating grass like a cow. I don't see anybody covered in feathers or their their fingernails as long as, you know, birds' talons. I don't see that. So fortunately for all of us here, no one is being humbled like King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's unlikely that God will humble you in exactly the same way. However, we can't forget that God can humble you. And though it may not be eating grass and turning into an animal, God can do other things to humble you. If you are a proud and selfish person, And the time that God gives you to repent runs out. Then he is able to bring you low and to take away everything you cherish. He can take it away. He can take everything away. He can take your health. He can take your wealth. He can take your friends, your family. He can take all of it. But now the good news, here's another point of application is that like King Nebuchadnezzar, if you are proud and selfish, God is giving you time to humble yourself. There's still time. 
And isn't it better, if you think about it for a moment, isn't it better to learn from King Nebuchadnezzar and his experience without having to go through an experience like his? So we can read it and we can learn from it or we can go through it ourselves. And is, is, is not the first option better than the second? So if there is one lesson to take away from this chapter it is to humble ourselves before God forces us to be humble. But there's one lesson, that is it. And if you think to yourself, well, how can I do this? Because if you've struggled with your pride and selfishness before, it feels impossible to get rid of it, to humble yourself. And reality is it is in your own power, in your own strength. And so if you've had that struggle before, and if you are thinking to yourself, how can this, how can I change? How can I humble myself? Well, as we see, God is able to do it. God could change the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, and God can change your heart as well. And so, if you desire to be humble before the Lord, you can ask God to do that for you. You can ask him to change your heart. Now, I know I've been kind of talking about those that might be proud and selfish. What about those of you, those of us, who have humbled ourselves before God? Meaning, we've placed our faith in him. We recognize that he is in control of everything, and we've submitted our life to him. How can we benefit if we fall into that category? How can we benefit from this chapter? Well, I'll end with this, and this really even applies to everybody, not just those who have placed their faith in God. But I'll end with this. If God can take away Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, preserve it, and restore it, then there is nothing that God will take away from you that he is not able to restore. And what's the most valuable thing you have? If you think about it for a moment, what's the most valuable thing you have in this life? It's your life. Right? Is there anything more valuable than your life? Anything that... Any amount of money that could buy your life? No, no. And so if we think about our life being the most valuable thing that we have in our possession, even if God takes away your life, and he can, and sometimes he does, even for those who are righteous, he calls them to, to die for their faith or to, I mean, we're all gonna die at some point, we're all going to die at some point. But even if God takes away your life, well, then he can restore it, even your life. And he will. In the same way Jesus rose from the dead after three days, if you believe in Jesus, if you have placed your faith in him, if you have submitted your life to him, if you have picked up your cross and have begun to follow him, then in the same way he rose from the dead after three, day, three days, so too will you rise from the dead when his kingdom returns. So, for everybody here, all of us, we can find security with God. We can find safety with God. We can find prosperity with God. We can find life with God. And so what we must do, we must trust him, we must obey him, and we must honor him. And if we do those things, he will be with us and he will bless us beyond anything that we 
could imagine. Let's pray and we will be dismissed. Lord God, we are thankful for your word and the truth within your word. Even the example provided through King Nebuchadnezzar, this formerly pagan king who was humbled by you and who ended up praising you and speaking your biblical truth to the world. Lord, I pray that we would learn this truth without having to go through the pain and humiliation that you put King Nebuchadnezzar through. I pray that we would just learn through your word and that we would humble ourselves and apply your word to our life. And so I pray, Lord, that you would do that for everyone here, all of us in here. Lord, I pray for the students and the adults that are in here, that you would be with them the rest of this week, that you would guide them. And, uh, and Lord, just continue to be with us all. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the East Memorial Student Podcast. For more information and updates about East Memorial Student Ministries, please visit our website at eastmemorial.org. You can also follow us on our Instagram page titled EMBC Student. 